0: Alright, good, good morning. Welcome to Restoration Church. If I have not uh, had the chance to, uh, to greet you today, my name is Pastor Kevin. And uh, I'm just excited to be here to uh, worship the Lord alongside you and uh, to connect with him today. Um, if you were to go to Oklahoma City, uh, the most sacred symbol in all of Oklahoma City is a tree. It's a simple tree Shade-bearing an 80-year-old American elm tree. I think uh, it looks something like that. Now, this tree is unique because tourists will come from all over the region. They'll drive miles upon miles to come and visit this tree. In our our world of, of selfies, people will come and get their picture taken in front of the tree because its significance. Arborists, they very meticulously... Take care and protect this tree. This tree, if you go to Oklahoma City, you will find it on posters. You will find it on letterhead. You will see it all over the place. Sure, there are other trees in the region that are larger, that are fuller, that are are even greener. But no tree is as cherished as this tree right here. Because the city, it cherishes this tree not for its appearance, but for its endurance. Because this tree endured the Oklahoma City bombing. 1995, uh, this was really the first major act of evil that I was at an age that I could understand what was happening. Timothy McVeigh, he parked a a truck full of explosives uh, several yards from this tree and detonated it. And if you uh, remember that story His act of terror killed 168 people. It wounded 850 people. It destroyed the federal building in Oklahoma City. And it left this tree, it left this tree uh, with with rubble all over the place and with shrapnel embedded into it. No one gave any thought to this old tree. It was as good as dead. But then, comes springtime, the tree began to bud. Sprouts pressed through the damaged tree bark. Leaves began to push away the the soot that covered this tree. And this was a life that was resurrected from that acre of death in Oklahoma City. And people noticed. People noticed this tree. This tree gave, gave hope to a tattered city. The tree modeled the resilience that the victims needed so the city gave this elm tree a name they call it the survivor tree survivor tree to some extent isn't this what we want all of our stories to be like don't we want to say that we have a story kind of like this tree you know that somehow in our lives despite despite our difficult circumstances Despite despite the wrongs that have been put upon us, despite all the evil around us, don't we want to have a life that says we rose out of the ruins? We survived despite all the odds against us? Don't we want to have a life that gives hope to the people around us? The question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we rise out of the ashes? How do we overcome the the, the difficulty and the hurt and the pain and those things? I think David probably has some ideas for us. If you are new to Restoration Church, we've been in a series the past couple of weeks called Pursuing God's Heart. A study on the life of David. And as a, as a little bit of a recap for what we've learned about David, we saw that David was the youngest of eight brothers, and he was from a little podunk town uh, called Bethlehem. And if you can picture uh, the end of the road that nobody goes to, that was where David was from. And it is in this town that the prophet Samuel comes and anoints David to be the next king. A few months later, a few months later David is is going to go out to visit his brothers. His brothers were in the the military. They were in the they were soldiers. And his dad says, "Hey David, go take this lunch to your brother." So David goes out to his brothers and he sees this he sees this uh, big bad wolf that everybody was afraid of, Goliath. And David says, "Why isn't someone going to go fight him?" And David, who's just a teenage boy, volunteers and says, "Hey, I'll go fight Goliath." And he defeated Goliath. God continues to bless David wherever he goes. David becomes the general, uh, one of the generals in the army and had a a number of soldiers underneath him. And he began to win favor from the people of Israel. And, And God just continued to bless him everywhere he went. But eventually, the current king, Saul, he can't stand someone being better than him. He can't stand God's blessing on somebody else's life. And so Saul becomes filled with with jealousy and he starts to pursue David's life in an effort to kill him. We saw that there were six murderous attempts that Saul put on David's life. And, And as Saul began pursuing David, he began taking away everything that David held dear. He took away David's job. He took away David's wife. He took away David's home. He took away David's mentor. He took away David's best friend. David had nothing left to lean on. Finally, finally, David finds cover in the cave of Doom. And it's in that cave of Doom that he found his refuge in God. And realized, during the difficult times, there's only one place I can turn for refuge. And that is in God. 400 men who were rejected, who were, who were broken, they joined David in that cave and they became a mighty army of God. So, 1 Samuel 23, verse 14, kind of sums up what David's life is like this day, in in this time. It says in verse 14, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Every day, David is on the run from Saul. Saul has has taken all of his attention. He's taken the entire army and said, here's what we're going to do. Instead of protecting our boundaries, instead of of, uh, working with the Philistines and destroying them, we're going to pursue this shepherd boy. So at this point, David's on the run for years. Not just months, not just weeks. He's on the run for years trying to save himself from Saul's rage. So today, today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26. These are really two different stories uh, that are almost identical. And as we look at these stories, David is going to, to teach us a few things. And he's going to become an example for us on how we can rise above the ruins. David will teach us how we can uh david will teach us about revenge david will teach us about forgiveness about vengeance and about grace and i think ultimately we can learn how we can become a survivor tree and rise above the ruins before we jump in though let's let's go ahead and pray god we are thankful for the opportunity to be with your people today god for the church God, we know the church is not just a building. The church is a people. So, God, we're so blessed and honored to be gathered with your people today. God, I pray that you would allow us to, to lean in now. God, that you'd put the distractions out of our minds, that your word would speak loudly and clearly. God, that's what we want. That's what we're about. God, pray that you would work in our hearts. God, you knew what, you know what our week looked like. You know what our month has looked like. You know what's going on inside of our hearts. So, God, I pray that you would speak to us, every one of us, directly. God, that you would break us for what break, break our hearts for what break yours, that you would continue to draw us to yourself. that God, we would experience your grace today in your presence. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. So as we mentioned, Saul and his army, they are, they've been pursuing David every day. And in 1 Samuel 23, uh, there was a problem with the Philistines. While Saul and the army were out pursuing David, the Philistines came and they raided the land. And so Saul had to stop pursuing David and go back and deal with the Philistine problem. And in chapter 24, Saul and his army, they begin pursuing David again. But what's awesome is there's a little bit of a unique situation that arises in chapter 24. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En gedi So then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats, wild goats rocks. And he came into the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. Here's my favorite part. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Teenage boys are dying right now because of that. See, I, I love that the Bible is just so real. It just puts it out there, you know? In the midst of Saul's craziness and his rage against David, Saul's got to answer the, the the call of nature. That pot roast from last night's dinner wasn't sitting very well, and he had to go take care of business. So, so Saul finds himself in, in, in some quiet time in the cave, trying to have his quiet time to take care of business. But this cave isn't just any cave. This happens to be the exact cave that David and his men were hiding. You talk about being vulnerable. You talk about Saul being vulnerable. See, it's bad enough, it's bad enough for the king to be seen at that very moment when he's taking care of his business, but much less to be in the presence of his enemy. And this is what David's men said. They said, hey, David, here's your chance. Saul's Preoccupied, Saul's taking care of business. He's not on guard. He's by himself. David, you can come in. Here's my dagger. Go take care of this problem. And re- remember, these 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 men of David's—they were trained to fight. And here, their enemy was at the most vulnerable moment. Come on, David, take care of this problem once and for all. So, verse four says, David arose and stealthily. Cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Keyword there is stealthily. He had to creep up and kind of watch where he walked as he snuck up behind David. If you know what I mean. But instead of later gloating and and glorifying what he had done, David became troubled. Verse five says that his heart struck him. He began to feel guilty. Now you got to put yourself in David's shoes. He's done. David's done nothing wrong to Saul. David has been faithful. David has been honorable. He has done nothing wrong uh, that would, that would enlist the rage of Saul. This is unrealistic. And so David, David, he's got every right to, to, to want to kill Saul. Saul has violated him in every way. Saul has, has unjustly pursued him. Saul has taken away everything that David holds dear. And all David did was cut a corner of his robe. And all of a sudden, David was overcome with guilt. See, do you think integrity matters? I mean, this is really just a little thing. It's just a corner of a robe. No one would probably even notice that it was gone. But you see, when we give in to temptation, we tend to rationalize what we do as just being a little thing. But something we have to understand is there is no small small step on the road to temptation. There's no small step. Every step we take when we give into temptation is is a step in the wrong direction. No matter how big, no matter how small. David cut off a a part of the king's robe. And now he experienced this, this justified guilt. Because you see, when we really begin to walk with God... We desire to come to terms with God on every single detail. We get bothered by the little things. Our conscience bothers us even with something very small. See, and it's when we get away from those little things. It's when we allow ourselves to make excuses like, this doesn't matter, it's such a little thing. That is the warning sign that we are headed down a terrible path. Continues in verse 6, and he says, "Uh, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. I I just, I love verse 6 here. Verse 7, excuse me. Here we see David. He did the right thing, despite the whole bunch of people around him encouraging him to do the wrong thing. And it says he persuaded them with his words. Can you imagine the conversation that David would have had with his men? Hey guys, you know, I don't think we should do this. Come on, David. Come on, David. Everybody's doing it. Come on, David. We, we, we won't judge you. We, we, we won't tell anybody. You, you can get away with it. Nobody's going to care. This is going to solve our problem, David. But think about this. Who knows? Who knows who you and I could persuade for Jesus if we walked with God with integrity? Who knows the impact that we could have on the people around us if we walked with God in integrity? Honestly, there's no greater turnoff to Christianity than a hypocrite. Sometimes people, when they say they love Jesus and they walk with Jesus, but their life doesn't show it, that becomes one of the greatest turnoffs to Christianity. But on the flip side, there is probably nothing more infectious or or attractive about Christianity than a person whose godly lifestyle reflects their faith. The the impact of, of, hey, I have a relationship with Jesus and he begins to change me even in the minute details. There's probably nothing more attractive to Christianity than a godly lifestyle and every part of their life. Authentic Christianity. Doing the right thing even when everybody else is doing wrong. This isn't being preachy. This isn't being prudish. This is just good, honest, clean christian living this is having integrity this is refusing to participate in hypocrisy so saul finishes his his business and He exits the cave and david soon follows and from the entrance of the cave david lifts the corner of the robe that he cut off from saul and verse 11 he says this he says see my father see the corner of your robe in my hand For by the fact that I cut the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, but you hunt my life and take it away. David says, I could have killed you. I had you in my grasp, but I didn't. I honored you. And Saul looks up stunned. And he says in verse 19, If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safely? Saul says, this doesn't happen. And David says, it does happen. It just happened. And we're going to see it happens once more. Chapter 26, Saul once again is pursuing and hunting and, and chasing after David. And David hears that Saul is back at it again. And so David sends a couple spies out to determine, hey, where's Saul at? How many people does he have with him? What's happening? And the spies come back to David and they say, hey, hey, David, it's late at night. And Saul and all of his men and all of his guards, they've fallen asleep. They've fallen asleep. David, here's your opportunity. So David asks his men for a volunteer to go. In chapter 26, verse 7, tells a story. It says, so David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, and he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. And no man saw it or knew it, nor did they wake. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon him. See, once again, David would not budge in his integrity. He would not lift even a finger against the Lord's anointed king. From a distance, from a distance around the campsite, David hollers out and wakes up the camp. And he tells Saul in verse 23, in chapter 26, he says, The Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David. He's a man after God's own heart. He's the, he's the example for you and I on how we can become men and women after God's own heart. And this is one of the stories we like. This is one of the stories where David is a stud. We look up to him and say, "Man, that's amazing. Most of us could only dream of living with such integrity. We often say that we would, we would definitely do the right thing if we had the opportunity. Even when the wrong thing would have been acceptable. But in reality, man, what would you do if you knew you could get away with it? What would you do if you knew you'd never get found out? But this message isn't just about integrity, David also teaches us a very important lesson about forgiveness and revenge. Again, we can't ignore the fact that Saul has effectively rocked David's world and taken away everything that David held dear. And we talked about these things. He's taken taken away his career, his wife, his friends. He's taken everything away from him. And now David has been on the run for years from Saul and, and his rage. See, I remember way back in first grade, I remember the first time I really became angered. See when I was a kid, one of the things I learned uh, was when you became a teacher's pet, that usually had good benefits for you and so I learned how to be a teacher's pet. I learned how to be a good kid, and I learned how to 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 kiss up to, don't laugh at me I, you know I just back in first grade, it worked out well for me, you know a free recess, extra snacks, whatever it was and so and so first grade, I'd learned this, and we had a student teacher come in, and this is the first time I had a male teacher, and I thought, this is awesome, you know? Student teacher, and we, we, we kicked it off well, we, we, we connected well, yeah, and he'd been with us for about two months, and, and I just really enjoyed him, we were, we were buddies, until that day, that morning. Again, when you're the teacher's pet, sometimes you get away with, with things, and he called me on the carpet for something, I don't know what it was, something dumb, and I remember how angry I got at him, He just rejected me. He he violated our friendship. He hurt me. He embarrassed me in front of the class. And I remember for the rest of that day, I didn't talk to him. I wouldn't even look at him. He'd be in the front and call on me and say, hey, would you read this word? And I wouldn't even acknowledge him. I didn't even acknowledge he was there. And then I remember later in class, you know, you go into the little stations at the different tables and we're doing an art project and he's there. And and again, I'm at a station and I'm not, looking at him. I'm not talking to him. And, and he's painting this little bear. And I took a bunch of uh, sprinkles. I dumped him on his thing, knocked him over. And, ah! <laughs> well, that didn't quite work out for me because uh, that was a pretty cool bear having all those sprinkles on it. I mean, it made a pretty cool little picture. but uh, <laughs> But I wanted revenge. I wanted revenge because he hurt me because he violated me. Think about your life. Think think about the people who have rocked your world. Think about that person who has hurt you so deeply. That person, maybe who abused you. Maybe the, the spouse who abandoned you. Maybe it's the boss who took advantage of you. Maybe it's the parent who rejected you and didn't love you. Maybe it's the thief who stole your peace of mind. Maybe it's the teacher who told you you're never going to amount to anything. Maybe you've got anger issues, and maybe it's just a person who took your parking spot at the grocery store. Whatever that person is, think about that person who's violated you, who's hurt you. And just imagine imagine that that person is by themselves in your cave. Or they're asleep at your feet. Would your response response be the same as David's? Would you be able to forgive that scumbag who hurt you so deeply? See, failure to do so, failure to forgive that person could be fatal. Job chapter 5 verse 2 says, Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. You see, when we... When our attention becomes focused on our anger, when our attention becomes focused on our hurt, when our attention becomes focused on that person who violated us, that becomes all we can see. That becomes all we think about. They begin to consume us, consume our minds. See what vengeance does? Vengeance fixes your attention on life's ugliest moments. When you are focused on score settling, on settling the score, it freezes your stare at the cruel events of the past and you become consumed with what happened before. Is this what you really want to look at? Will rehearsing and reliving how you were hurt, will that make you a better person? No, it destroys us. It literally will destroy you. Did you ever hear the story about Joe and his friend Jerry? Joe was complaining to his counselor one day. He said, I've got this friend Jerry. And, and every time I talk to Jerry, he takes his finger and he, punt, punt, he pushes it in my chest like this time and time again. And he says, I can't stand it. So the counselor says, well, what are you going to do about it? And Joe says, watch this. And he pulls out this string from, from inside his shirt. And inside is a little bar of, of uh, highly explosive nitroglycerin. And he, he's he's tied it to he's tied it to a string around his neck. And he says, Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna wear this string around my neck so this nitroglycerin sits right at the spot of my chest where he keeps poking at me. And then when he pokes me next time, he's gonna pay. Right? Oh. Maybe that's not gonna work as good as he thought. You see, revenge needs two graves. Revenge needs a grave for the person who wronged you, but it also needs a grave for yourself. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, For anger lodges in the hearts of fools. An eye for an eye becomes a tooth for a tooth. And the tooth for a tooth becomes a neck for a neck. And that becomes a job for a job. And that becomes a reputation for a reputation. When does it stop? It stops when someone chooses to be like David and having a God-dominated mind. See, David, somehow, he was able to exhibit a heart of forgiveness. And the question we have to ask is, how was David able to overcome the the desire for revenge even when his men were urging him to pursue it? There's four things that David is going to teach us Three things, three things that David's going to teach us about having a heart of forgiveness. First thing David's going to teach us is, is you face your Saul, you face your enemy the same way that you face your Goliath. Remember in the story of David and Goliath, all the soldiers, all they could see with Goliath, that's all they could talk about. But David, who did David talk about? He talked only about God. You see, the first way you you, you you have a heart of forgiveness is you have, you focus more so on God than anything else. Instead of being stuck on what Saul did, instead of being stuck on how he was violated, David focused himself on God. As you look through these two chapters, you see this in chapter 24, verse 6. It says, The Lord forbid that I should do anything. Verse 6, the Lord's anointed. Verse 6, the Lord's anointed. Verse 10, the Lord gave. Verse 10, the Lord's anointed. Verse 12, may the Lord. Verse 12 again, the Lord avenged. Verse 15, may the Lord. Time and time and time again, it is God who is dominating David's thoughts. It is God who is dominating his words. 26, it's the same thing. As David is talking to the bodyguard, he says in verse 16, as the Lord lives, the Lord's anointed. Verse 19, If it is the Lord who has stirred you up before the Lord and the heritage of the Lord. Verse verse 20, in the presence of the Lord. Verse 23, the Lord rewards you. The Lord gave you. The Lord's anointed, precious in the sight of the Lord. Do you get this? God is first and foremost on David's mind. His mind isn't consumed with how he's been violated. His mind isn't consumed about that person who hurt him. His mind, his, his, his life is consumed with God. He sees God much more than anything that has happened to him. See, this is something I'm beginning to learn about David. And it almost, it almost seems too simple. David, he didn't focus on Goliath, David, he didn't focus on Saul. He didn't focus on how he'd been hurt, on how he'd been violated focused on God. And if you and I, if we're going to become men and women after God's own heart, I think the, the, the thing to learn is we can't focus on the difficulties in front of us. We can't focus on how we've been wronged, on how we've been hurt. We can't focus on the people who have hurt us, the peoples who have abandoned us, the people who have violated us. We have to focus above all else on God. And it seems so simple. It seems so simple, but if we're going to be honest, it is so difficult for us to put into practice. Second thing that David is going to teach us about having a heart of forgiveness is is David views his enemy through the grid of heaven. And these two chapters... If you go through and you circle every time that David calls Saul, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed, you'll find it six times in these two chapters. Can you think of any other terms that that David might have used for Saul? I mean, I've got I've got four boys at home, and sometimes they get into arguments, and you hear all sorts of name calling. You know, uh, fart sniffer, scab eater. I mean, all sorts of creative things. You know, what about you? (laughs) What kind of names would you call your greatest enemy? Would those be words that we could say in church? Not David. David saw Saul not as his enemy, but Saul as the anointed. He refused to see his enemy as anything less than a child of God. No, no, David didn't applaud Saul's behavior. He just acknowledged who ultimately is in control of God, in control of Saul, God. He acknowledged the sovereignty of God. David filtered his view of Saul through the grid of heaven. The king, Saul, he still belonged to God. And that gave David hope. There's a story that Max Cato tells. Max Lucado and his wife, they had a little puppy at one point. And uh, they took their, uh, it was a golden retriever, and they took the golden retriever and they took him to the kennel for the weekend. And, and while he was there, a Rottweiler had climbed out of its dog run and attacked their puppy, leaving their puppy with, with dozens of deep gashes and a dangling ear, nearly killing the puppy. You can imagine how Max Lucato and his wife would have felt about their dog being nearly killed. So he, he wrote a letter to the dog kennel owner Urging the the kennel owner to put the Rottweiler to sleep, and he brings he brings that letter to the owner. And when he presented it to the presented the letter, the dog owner begged Max to reconsider. He said, "What that dog did was a terrible thing, but I'm still training him. I'm not finished yet." See, God would say the same thing to whoever, whoever it is that has wronged you. What they did was unthinkable, unacceptable, inexcusable. But God would say, I'm not finished with them yet. Your enemies, they still figure into God's plan. The fact that they're alive is still proof. God hasn't given up on them. They may absolutely be out of the will of God, but they're not out of his reach. You honor God when you see them, not as his failures, but as his projects. Third thing that David is going to teach us. He's going to teach us that vengeance belongs to God, not to us. Revenge belongs to him, not to us. From the mouth of the cave, chapter 24, David said in verse 15, he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David realizes God is the only one who occupies the seat on the supreme court of heaven. He wears a robe and he refuses to share the gravel with us. For this reason, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, he said, beloved, never avenge yourselves. but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, when we begin to pursue revenge, what it does is it removes God from the equation. Vigilantes, they displace and they replace God with themselves. And we justify it. We say things like, you know, God, I'm not sure you can handle this one. God, I'm not sure that you can handle You might punish too little or you might punish too, too strong. And so, God, I'll take matters into my own hands this time. Is this what we want to say? Is this what we want to do? Because Jesus didn't. Nobody had a more better sense of right and wrong than Jesus, the perfect son of God. Yet 1 Peter 2 says when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Only God assesses accurate judgments. We impose our judgments too severe or too slight. God dispenses perfect justice. Vengeance is his job. Not ours. So we leave our enemies in his hands. I know that sounds difficult. It sounds good. Oh, it makes sense, but it is so difficult to put to practice. How can I do that? There's no way that I can just forgive and and move on. Listen, forgiveness is not pretending that things didn't happen. David doesn't gloss over or sidestep Saul's sin. He didn't avoid the issue, but ultimately, David kept his distance. As you look at the end of both of these chapters, chapter 24, verse 22, it says, David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. The end of chapter 26 and verse 25, it says, So David went his way, and Saul returned to his palace. Saul went back to the palace, and David went the other direction, to the caves. Forgiveness is not foolishness. Give grace, but if it needs to be, keep your distance. There's nothing wrong with that. Ultimately, if we were to sum it up, we would say that forgiveness all comes down to seeing your offender with different eyes. Many years ago, there were some Moravian missionaries who took the gospel of all places to the Eskimos in Alaska the problem was, is that when the missionaries arrived, they, they had a hard time finding uh, a word that would fit the word forgiveness. They couldn't find a, a word of the native language. So the missionaries uh, are working through it, and they finally agreed on a word that portrayed what forgiveness was. I don't know if I can even say this word. Isa, Majik, Ujung, Nainer mik." I don't think you could get any Christian t-shirt without It'd be too big to fit on the t-shirt, you know? But when this word is translated, when it's translated, it means this. Not being able to think about it anymore. See, to forgive is just to move on. To not think about the offense anymore. You don't excuse them. You don't excuse what happened. You don't endorse that person. You don't even have to embrace them. You just route your, your thoughts about them through the grid of heaven. You see your enemy as God's child, and you give revenge to be God's job. See, if you're here today, and you're a Christian, you are a Christian, you have received God's grace yourself, how can we expect to do anything less than extend that same grace to the people around us? Are we so bold? Are we so proud that we'd ask God for grace and forgiveness and then refuse to give it to people who've violated us? This is a huge issue in Scripture. Jesus was very tough on sinners who refused to forgive other sinners. In Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus' life, chapter 18 tells us about the story of about a servant who had been forgiven of millions and millions of dollars of debt. And then he refused to forgive the debt of somebody who owed him a few hundred dollars. This dude stirred the wrath of God. Jesus said to him in verse 32, verse 33, he says, you wicked servant, should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? Ultimately, we give grace because we've been given grace. We survive Because we imitate that survivor tree. We reach our roots beyond the bomb zone. We tap into the moisture beyond that explosion. We dig deeper and deeper until we draw moisture from the mercy of God. We, like Saul, have been given grace. And we, like David, can freely give it. Would you pray with me? God, there's times when we open up your word and God, you deal with some deep things. God, I'm thankful that you don't skip over those things. I'm thankful that it's real. But God, as we think about people who have wronged us, people who have violated us, man, God, that, that rages inside of us. That boils inside of us. Holds us back. God, ultimately, it can be fatal. God, I'm thankful for the story and the challenge to be men and women after God's own heart, to have hearts of forgiveness. God, we know that that is not possible without you. We know that you are the one that makes it possible because on our own, God, we are full of vengeance. We are full of anger. But God, through your grace that you've given us, it's through that grace that we can give grace to others. God, I pray for those in here, God, who have been holding on to that bitterness of all the ways that they've been wronged, of how somebody has violated them so deeply, has hurt them so deeply, has taken away what has meant so much to them, that God, your grace would be on them. That God, they would begin to become that survivor tree, to overcome the ruins, to extend forgiveness and grace. God, I pray that you would help us to see you more than our problems, to see you more than the ways that we've been hurt, to see you as greater than anything in front of us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand how to put this into practice. God, I pray that you would help us to see everybody, even those people that we have such bitterness towards that we would see them through the grid of heaven and grace and the fact that, God, you are sovereign, that you are powerful, and that nobody, God, is beyond your reach. God, I pray that you would help us to have trust in your vengeance, that you will bring vengeance For what's been done and i pray for us to help us to practice this i pray that today would be a significant day that god you did something mighty in our heart god i pray as we have the opportunity to respond to your word god we know your word is not just to be heard it's meant to be acted upon and god as we have the opportunity to sing these next two songs in response to your word today. God, I pray that you would uh, allow us to spend some time in prayer, crying out to say, God, would you help me to put this to practice? Would you help me to embrace it, to understand it, that it's not just something I ascribe to mentally, but it's something I can actually do in my heart. God, I pray if there's anybody in here who, who this has just opened up a wound and they say, man, I need someone to talk to, I need someone to pray with. God, I pray that during these two songs that they'd have the boldness to come forward and say, hey, pastor, would you pray with me? Pastor, can I just tell you my story, what I'm working through? Because ultimately, this is what I want for each and every one of us. That we would be men and women after your own heart. That we would exhibit a heart of forgiveness. And God, if we're there, God, if you've done a work in our heart, I pray that during this response time, that we can just close our eyes and we can join in worship and praising you for who you are. Because God, no matter what somebody has done to us, no matter what Saul has done to David, God, every time we sin, we reject you. And your grace is always there to forgive us. And God, that's worthy of our worship. That's worthy of our praise. That we have received your grace time and time again. God, I pray for your presence to be with us now as we respond to your word. We ask this in your holy and precious name.